podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Questo suono dal Sud America fino giù in Senegal, profumo d'Africa nella Nuova Guinea. La sentirai in Albania, che assomiglia a casa mia. Riparte dal Belgio, arriva in Croazia, Slovacchia, Polonia e Romania. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Worldwide Series. This is a series all about our fans. I'm convinced that we have the best fans in the world. So I wanted to give our fans all over the world a platform where they can speak their minds, they can tell their stories, and together we can continue to grow this amazing community. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're heading to France for today's episode, which is brought to you by Betstamp the world's first verified buy-sell marketplace for sports betting picks. You might know today's guest as the winner of our Betstamp shirt giveaway. Powell, welcome to Fortsanopoly. Yeah, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to have you on. So we are going to talk, of course, about Napoli's 3-2 win over Bologna at the weekend. There's plenty to cover there, from a pretty mediocre first half to some smart changes from Luciano Spalletti at the break to Alex Medet's howler. But we always start these episodes with our guest stories. So, Paul, how did you, living in France, become an Apple fan? So, first of all, I don't have any relation to Italy. I mean, I'm not Italian. But um, after the, um, the Euro uh, 2016 when France went to the finals. Obviously, I had a big interest in football. And um, at that time, in the 2016-2017 season, if I remember correctly, the Cerebral was very famous. And Napoli was playing a very beautiful uh, play style. And uh, I loved the Americans in seeing uh, Callejon vibes. So I started following Napoli uh, without watching all the games. But I remember playing them on um, Football Manager the video game, and yeah, I, I really like the squad. I even had this black and golden shirt for Christmas. I don't know if you remember that one. But uh, yeah, I had an interest in this team, but I wasn't a true supporter at that time. And in 2018, Napoli was in the uh, UCL group of PSG. So I watched, obviously, all the UCL games because my friends were cheering for PSG. And I really like to watch his games, even though uh, we couldn't qualify to the uh, UCL finals. So I remember that game against uh, Liverpool when uh, Alisson made that incredible save against Milik. From there, I also followed their path in uh, Europa League when we got eliminated against Arsenal. And from there, I watched all the games of Napoli and um, I went to the San Paolo with my family in uh, 2019. Then we had difficult years, but uh, I kept that true love for the players. I really liked Zeninski, Mertens, Koulibaly, and uh, Di Lorenzo, obviously. That experience of supporting a foreign club was a little bit weird sometimes because, you know, I, I didn't know any other Napolitan fan than me. And the club isn't so popular in France. You know, people prefer... Barca, Real, or Manchester United. But I felt like I had this Napolitan identity. Like, I really loved the players. I got that 
excitation for all the games. And yeah, I just enjoyed uh, watching the games and supporting the players. So then there was the lockdown. So um, I couldn't go um, to Naples for some years, but I went to the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona in 2022 with only my dad this time. It was against Sassuolo. We won by 6-1 this day. I think there was a goal from Brazilian, Koulibaly, and I don't remember the, the other strikers, but there was a lot of goals, so I really enjoyed it. And since six months now, I have more interaction on social media with Napoli fans, so I am having even more fun supporting this team, and I am upgrading my knowledge of Italian football. I watch all the shows made by Italian Football TV. They are from the US, I think, so it's really interesting. And of course, I listen to your podcasts every week. So recently, I also started to do compilations, as you know, after you know your podcast. Okay, yeah. So I do, uh, I do remember a few black shirts. I don't know if it was sixteen, seventeen, or seventeen, eighteen, somewhere around there. Did it have the the Garofalo sponsor on the front? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that was definitely a good one. You picked a good time definitely to become a Napoli supporter because yeah, Saudi ball up until maybe this season or last season was, you know, the most attractive football Napoli had played in a very very long time. I do also remember that that match uh, against Sassuolo where Koulibaly scored, Osimhen, Lozano, Mertens got a couple. Um, yeah, Rachmani maybe, and then I, yeah, I think Maxime Lopez scored late in that match. So yeah, you picked a, a good match to attend as yeah, well. Yeah, I think Mertens had an incredible goal, if I remember correctly. It sounds almost like you know maybe there's not a huge Napoli following in France, but I, I do see you interacting with quite a few people on social media in France. Yeah, so. yeah, but I mean, I don't know any French Napolitan fan uh, in real life, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah, of course, there is a fan base on social media, but I don't think there are a lot in France. Right. And do you have a, a favorite French club? Like you mentioned watching PSG in the Champions League and through that you got to see Napoli play. Is, is PSG your French club or do you have a different French club? Um, well, I live in Paris, so obviously okay. um, I like PSG. I like the players like Neymar. They got also Lavezzi and uh, and Cavani. Yeah, that's um, where kind of where I, I was going with it because yeah. there was that connection, right? Yeah, uh, Verratti, who I really love, but I just didn't like the identity of the club. I mean, the recent mm-hmm. identity, you know, is just about money. So I didn't see myself in that. So that's why I wasn't supporting PSG when I was little, I think. But um, my family come from Brittany region in France so sometimes I go to the stadium with with my family when I when I go to Brittany or with friends and uh, there is this team in French we say uh, FC Lorient mm-hmm. and they are playing very good right now they are at the second place of the league whereas and they were only um, promoted recently right to the yeah yeah exactly they are in the first league since like one year and yeah. uh, they are playing amazing right now so uh, yeah it's amazing. I went to the stadium with a friend and and my little cousin at the beginning of the year, and uh, they were playing really well. So I really like it. 
we were talking about this a bit offline before we started recording, but surprisingly, there haven't been too many French players that have played for Napoli. Are there are there any favorites of yours that you can think of off the top of your head? I, I've noted a couple, but you're fairly young, so you might not know the ones that I'm thinking of, but any stand out to you? Actually, Gonzalo Inguain is yeah. born in France. Yeah, in Brest. Uh, yeah, in Brest, exactly, in Brittany. So uh, obviously, stories as us is a little bit weird, but he was a great player. And um, there was Laurent Blanc, yeah. too, yeah. Uh, who played in Naples and uh, is world champion. Yeah, I I kind of like Laurent Blanc. He's uh, the coach of a French team right now, but he was also the former coach of PSG when I was little, and they were playing very good, too. Now, there are a few French players who played in Napoli, but not many impacted the club, really. Yeah, exactly. Laurent Blanc, for those who don't know, played for Napoli for one season in 1991-92. So it was just a a couple years after that second Scudetto. The other one that stood out to me was Alain Bogosian, who played three seasons for Napoli, but it was in the sort of mid-90s, so not not the greatest period in uh, Napoli history. And then after that, yeah, there were brief stints by a few players. There were French players that we owned, but never actually featured for Napoli, like Zinedine Mashash or Eddie Naore, or even, you know, so that because on the squad now, but he's never played. Um, And then there were a number of players who were either French citizens or born in France, but elected to play for other nationalities, like Koulibaly playing for Senegal, Unas playing for Algeria, Goulam, um, and a couple of guys who just never worked out, like Bakayoko and Malqui. Speaking of sort of international football, you know, France has so much talent, and Ligue 1 is so good at, at finding and developing talent. Unfortunately, that means that sometimes really good players are not able to get into the France national team, and Koulibaly is sort of the obvious example of that. He was born in France, he played for the U20s, I believe but ultimately ended up deciding to play for Senegal. You know, how is that perceived in France? Is it just, we have so much talent here that unfortunately that's just the reality? Yeah, I think that there are so many young talents who are born in France. So uh, obviously, if they play really good at 19, 20 years old, they may want to um, represent a national team. There is a lot of competition in the national team, so they may not be called up to the national team, even though they may be playing very well in their club. There is also this wish from the coach, Didier Deschamps, to keep the same group and keep that atmosphere in the locker room. So he may call up some players uh, who are not being very good with their club, for example, Antoine Guillesman, who sometimes is in bad form, but he keeps being called up to France because we know that he can make big differences. Or we had the example with uh, Olivier Giroud, who wasn't playing with Chelsea or Arsenal, but he was a starter for the national team. So sometimes the young players don't have the opportunity to um, prove themselves in the team. But I think they they wait a long time before choosing to represent their origins country for example i think that koulibaly didn't play for senegal before being like 24 something like that i know he said that he regrets to have waited that long so 
yeah, I think it's pretty pretty tough to make this choice because they think that they have the opportunity to represent the France, but there is only 23 players in the group. So, yeah, it's pretty hard to call out all of them. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It's They're maybe hoping to get a call up and then eventually you have to make a decision. And like you said, Deschamps has been pretty loyal to his squad. And so yeah, exactly. that makes it even more difficult to get into that France national team. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll review the Bologna match. Welcome to part two of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Betstamp. With the Betstamp app, you can compare betting lines across multiple different sportsbooks in your region, which is the only way to get an edge in online sports betting. You can also buy and sell picks from verified accounts, and best of all, the app is free. There are no fees, no royalties, and no commissions. Just download the Betstamp app and be sure to use referral code NAPOLI when you create your account. All right, so let's talk about the Bologna match. As you know, Napoli won the match 3-2 on goals from Juan Jesus, Chucky Lozano, and Victor Osimen. Bologna's goals were scored by Joshua Zerxi and Musa Barrow. Let's start with the first half. Pal, as far as first halves go, this was probably one of the worst we've had this season. I mean, the one against Lecce wasn't so good either. Against Bezia too. I think that we could have scored two goals in the first half. I remember an occasion from Raspadori, another one from Politano on that Guara pass, the one from, from Mario Rui, where he should have made the pass to Raspadori. So yeah, I think we could have easily finished the first half with two goals and even three with the, um, the Juan Rezos goal, but they lacked efficacy compared to how they are playing in Champions League, which is our signature since the start of the season. Yeah, and for me, that's partly why it was a poor first half, because we did create those couple of chances, but you know, we our finishing, I guess you can say, was poor. The Raspadori one was a difficult chance to take. He's hitting it first time while he's turning with his weaker left foot. You mentioned the Spezia match. I think you can argue that even maybe even the Fiorentina half, but you know, the Fiorentina match was very competitive. It was a very high quality half from both teams and yeah, they just true. kind of canceled each other out. The stats for the first half of this match were similar to the stats from the Spezia match, at least in terms of shots and chances that we created, but Spezia created very little in the first half in that one, whereas Bologna had their share of chances in this first half, and Spezia certainly didn't score against us. There were a lot of things that I didn't like in this half. I mean, the first 15 minutes or so, I thought we really struggled with the pass. We saw Cavada overhit a pass for Mario Rui on the overlap. It was similar to the one where Mario Rui hit the bar, but it was just a bit too heavy. We saw Ndombele attempt a cross with the outside of his right boot that didn't really go the way he wanted it to, I don't think. Kim overhit a pass for Politano on the touchline. We saw Politano play across to no one in the area. Politano did not have a great half. There was another play where Zielinski thought that he was going to make that Jose Callejon run to the second post, and he just didn't go, so it looked like Zielinski crossed to no one. But like you said, we did create some chances. The one that Politano missed, he had the biggest chance of all. Powell, yeah. He has to score there, right? Yeah, I mean, he almost beat the goal because the goal is late. I think that it just has to 
push the ball, you know, uh, shoot it in the left bottom corner, something like that, and it just shoots in the standings of the uh, the stadium. I really didn't get how he missed that, but um, I mean, I wasn't so surprised, you know, he misses some big opportunities sometimes. Lozano does the same sometimes. I don't know. Politano has a tendency to score goals that don't really change the outcome of the match when you already have a two or three goal lead. You know, I think at the very least he has to hit the target there and test Skorupski. Had he scored, that might have been Napoli's goal of the season, at least as far as team goals are concerned. I went back and counted and Napoli completed 25 consecutive passes in the buildup to that chance and every outfield player made at least one pass in the buildup. That chance was in the 27th minute, and then after that, it seemed like Napoli took their foot off the gas a little bit. I don't know if you noticed it, Paul, but it looked like we stopped pressing around the half-hour mark, which is not very characteristic of Napoli, and that almost invited the pressure from Bologna. Yeah, I think that the key of the uh, first half um, was how played Zelinski, because we didn't see much, and... I know he's the one who uh, initiates the the pressing in the team. He's the one running the most, if I remember correctly. So I think he wasn't playing very well. I don't think he was running so much. I think he's the the player who really initiates all the plays and really transforms this team in in collective team. We know this play style, and he was under form in the first half. I think it just shows how um, all the players were not doing so good. And we didn't see much of Politano's run inside of the game. We know he likes to cut inside, but he didn't have so many opportunities to do it because they were playing very low. We didn't have this opportunity to intercept the ball in a comfortable situation to maybe um, surprise them. So we couldn't be very dangerous, I think. You're right. Zielinski does tend to be the first one initiating that press. The problem is the team has to press as a collective, right? Because otherwise, if only one man goes, then someone else is going to be open. You kind of all need to press. And it just seemed to me like everyone was sitting back. I don't know if they were just a little bit tired or what it was. But Bologna's best spell of the match was easily that final 15 minutes of the first half. That's when they created the bulk of their chances. That's when they scored their goal. They had a really good chance just prior to the goal where Dominguez's low cross was just out of the reach of Lewis Ferguson, who tried to slide and, and just missed it. Moments later, Joshua Zerksi scored his first of the season. Pal, what did you make of that goal? I think it was very similar to the... Um first goal of Ajax in the uh, first game against them that Kudus scored because I think that Kim and Di Lorenzo are going for the same player or for the same zone at least and many people noted the uh, Juan Jesus mistake but I think they just played really well on this and Kim was a little bit outplayed he wasn't placed so well I think this was just a great goal, you know, you have to give him credit when they play well. I think that we have struggles sometimes this season to to defend because we concede a lot of goals, even though we score a lot. It just shows the importance of Ramani, the, the placement of the defense. Yeah, of course, Juan Jesus makes a mistake on this, but 
I think that it's a very similar situation to the Ajax one. And uh, many people um, note that this one, like, it was very dangerous. And um, they just repeated the same error. So um, I think it's a little bit preoccupating. As you said, it seemed like Kim and Di Lorenzo both played the pass. And Xerxes made a clever little run where he kind of pulled up around the penalty spot, which is a very striker's sort of instinct thing to do to show himself. And with Kim playing the pass, there was really no one around him. He had a lot of time to take that shot. Nobody stepped up to mark him there. But I agree as well that sometimes you just have to tip your hat to the opponent because this was a really yeah. well-worked goal. They kind of they flipped the script on us a little bit in terms of the build-up. It was a very Napoli way to score a goal where mm. you know it started with the long ball being intercepted and then Bologna played the ball all the way back to Skorupski. They started to rebuild from there, pass their way up the pitch. I think it was 17 consecutive passes in the build-up before the goal. So you know it was a, a tough goal to concede, but one that you probably need to give them credit for. One last question for part two. I mentioned the chance that Bologna had moments before the goal. That chance started with Ndombele conceding possession in our half. A minute before that chance, Musa Barrow had a shot from distance, and that chance also started with Ndombele being dispossessed inside our own half. Of course, Ndombele started in place of the injured Andre Frank Zambuangisa, do you think perhaps some of our struggles in the first half were the result of not having Ngisa in the squad? I don't think Ndombele played so bad because we saw him sometimes doing those dribbles that he likes to do, playing good passes. But the thing with Ngisa is that he really never loses the ball. So we don't see how dangerous can be the counterattacks. And with a guy like Ndombele, who may be, sometimes he makes his errors, and um, it's deadly for our team because uh, we are playing really high and we are just not used to lose the ball at that moment because Ngisa never does. So I don't think the game that played Ndombele was so bad, but he had some moments where he should have done better of course i see him upgrading every game i think so um i'm not so worried about the absence of Angisa because anyway he had to get some rest he played a lot uh, during the season so we just need to see how we are playing when we miss some key players you know right now we miss ramani and Angisa. it may be the case when we will play the knockout games of ucl so uh, we need to be prepared to make a substitution and to trust Ndombele. I prefer that he makes those mistakes right now than in a game against Real Madrid in quarterfinals of UCL if we reach them, you know. He made an okay game, so I don't think we can blame him so much. Yeah, I agree with that. There's no denying how important Angisa is to our midfield, just as Lobotka and Zelinski are. I don't think any of our bench players, whether it's Ndombele, Almas, Gaetano, or whoever, are capable of replacing those three players. But I don't think Ndombele was terrible in this match either. I think, like you said, he's very slowly getting up to speed and could still end up being a very important player for us. As you said, Like as the schedule gets busier and busier, we're going to need these guys to play more minutes even in the Coppa Italia, so that we're not 
know, exhausting those three key players in the midfield. He did have some important contributions in the attack. He played the most passes in that sequence leading up to that Politano chance. He had a couple of nice flicks and turns, but as you said, he also had a couple of instances where maybe he turned the ball over where he didn't seem in sync with his teammates. Like there was the play where he and Raspadori ran into each other. Despite the rumors, I suspect Ndombele is still going to start against Roma in the next round. I'd be surprised if Angisa recovers on time for that match, but we'll have to see. And, and hopefully if Ndombele plays, then he can have another uh, strong performance. Okay, that will do for part two. In part three, we'll cover the second half. Welcome to part three of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Fort Sinopoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help me to continue to provide the best quality content that I can both on the podcast and on our website at fortsinopolypress.com. All right, so let's talk about the second half. Luciano Spalletti reacted to that poor or mediocre first half by making two changes to his attack, which is very rare from Spalletti. He normally doesn't make any changes at the half, but he did in this one and it paid off. He replaced Raspadori with Victor Osiman and Politano with Chucky Lozano, and both of them scored in the second half. Lozano scored less than five minutes into the half. Pal, Lozano looks like he's suddenly in form. Yeah, I mean, he scored three goals in uh, three matches, I think. I think that was a lucky one. And I didn't like so much his second half because, I don't know, it always seems like he has to prove himself something. And yeah, he's lucky he got that goal because otherwise, I don't think he made a really good match. He was okay, but he didn't impress me so much, you know. So with Lozano and Politano, I really, I really don't know who to choose as the starter, even though Politano is uh, really bad. It just looks like when Politano is playing well, Lozano is playing very bad. And when Lozano is playing well, um, Politano is playing very bad. So um, we are lucky he got that goal. It was an important one, but I don't think it was impressing. I mean, I made this joke with uh, another friend of mine that with those two, it's kind of like one plus one equals one, <laughs> because like you said, only one of them seems to be in form at a time, which is maybe better than both of them being in form at the same time or neither of them being in form at the same time. I think he still had a bit of work to do on that goal. I think to me, the lucky goal was the one against Cremonese where it was basically served up on a platter for him by Cavada, and he just had to tap it into the empty goal late into that match. I think the goal he scored against Ajax was fantastic. And together, I think those two restored his confidence a little bit. And maybe that was just enough for, for him to be confident enough to compose himself for this shot, to wait for the right moment to take the shot and then put it in the back of the goal. Whereas, you know, sometimes when things are not going your way, a chance like that you miss. And when things are going your way, a chance like that you don't miss. He had a couple of other decent chances even if that one was a little bit lucky there was another chance in the second half where he probably was unlucky to not score where he slid and and got a decent effort on target and it was basically straight at Skorupski but it was so hard that he kind of just had to react and he made a good save and I recall a run he made on the right wing around the Bologna defense and had it not been for an interception uh, it probably would have led to a goal as well. Cavada started 
the goal for Lozano by dribbling past a couple of players and, you know, the rebound eventually fell to Lozano. He assisted on Osiman's game winner with a perfectly weighted pass. You know, we're only 10 matches into the Serie A campaign and, you know, I've already run out of adjectives and superlatives to describe his play, but he just keeps on delivering. Yeah, he's making instant dribbles. He had a beautiful assist to make Ozyman score. He could have had two or three assists. He made that pass to Raspadori, that one again to Politano in the first half. And Zerinsky could have scored in the second half on that pass from Kavaratskhelia. He's been fantastic, even though he missed some dribbles. But I think that the important thing with Kavaratskhelia is that he tries very difficult plays, so when he succeeds, it's really dangerous. And he's a real menace to the opposite team. Every time he gets the ball, all the defenders are like getting one or two steps back because they really fear him. You can notice that they don't want to get dribbled. So he's our key player, I think, and he's just making insane passes right now. And we've seen we've seen it since the start of the season. I remember that pass to Zielinski during that match against Verona. The assist he made to Simeone against Liverpool. He's being decisive every match. He's grabbing a goal, an assist, getting a penalty for the team. So he's just playing insanely well, you know. He also played the pass to Mario Rui when he hit the frame of the goal. So it seemed like he was in some way or another involved in almost every high-quality scoring chance we had in this match. He now has seven goals and six assists in all competitions, and he's won a couple of penalty kicks. By the way, you might see some sites reporting his stats as seven goals and eight assists. I suspect those sites are using transfer marked and transfer marked counts penalties one as assists. However, Serie does not. So that might be the, the reason for the discrepancy there. But officially, it's seven goals and six assists. For Victor, it was already his second goal since returning from his injury. He scored the fourth goal against Ajax and the winner in this match, both with his left foot, which is interesting in itself. I doubt Osimen will be a bench player for much longer. But pal, I think this goal once again demonstrated Napoli's strength in depth. Yeah, I mean, Raspadori is playing very well right now. When Simeone plays, he's being decisive too. We saw it against Liverpool, we saw it against Milan, and in Cremonese, uh, where he scored a, a very important goal. So yeah, we just have a very good bench this year. It will change just from Petagna, with all due respect. And it's good to see that Ozyman is is in form right now. I think it was a good decision from Spalletti not to um, speed up his recovery and make him play too, too early, because Raspadori was being impressive. And I'm just wondering how Spalletti is going to deal with that situation because it would be unfair to tell Raspadori that he has to sit on the bench even though he was playing very well and at the same time Ozyman has to play because he's the starter he's the most valuable one so it's going to be tough for Spalletti to choose between those two 
yeah, I think we're going to get a good idea of what his plans are over the next sort of sequence of matches because we're going to be playing every three days for pretty much up until the World Cup break. So Spalletti's going to need to rely on all of his players to get through that without any major injuries. And for me, Simeon is the guy who's a bit of the odd man out. It seems like Raspadori's the second option at striker. Osiman is the first and finding time for Simeone may be a challenge, but he seems to have the right personality for it. Like he was celebrating after this match, even though he didn't feature. And I think he's just happy to be there. And to me, that's kind of the key to this whole thing. Obviously, strikers tend to be guys with big egos, big personalities, and some of them, you know, may not be too happy sitting on the bench. But so far, Simeone seems to be okay with it. Osimen and Cavada and even Lozano is a pretty scary proposition for opponent defense. It seems like a while ago now, but that was actually our starting front three at the start of the season. The problem defenders will have is deciding who to mark because you can't double up on both Victor and Cavada, and they're both very good in 1v1 situations for different reasons. Obviously, Osiman is good just at beating players with his pace, and then Cavada because of his dribbles. It was the fourth time this season where we conceded the first goal and fought back to get the win. The others were against Hellas Verona and Lazio and Serie A, and then in the first leg against Ajax in the Champions League. That's been a big difference between this year's squad and last year's. Now we have quality players that we can bring off the bench against Simeone, who can score important goals as well. We'll see if Simeone features against Roma, but I'm pretty sure he'll feature at some point in the Rangers match, if not from the first minute, just because we've pretty much got, well, we've already gotten our qualification to the knockout stage secured. Obviously, we still want to win the group, but with those games coming uh, quick and fast, like I said, uh, we want to rotate our squad. But this was the type of match that we probably wouldn't have won in previous seasons. Like the way that first half went, with the squandered opportunities, the, a bit of a lack of energy at the end of the half, and then the goal that we conceded, I had this sinking feeling in my stomach that this was going to be another match where we dropped points to a lower-ranked club like we did against Empoli or Spezia last season. Now, we can't go an entire pod without addressing sort of the elephant in the room, which was the howler that Alex Meret made. Pal, Meret nearly cost us all three points there. What did you think of that goal? I think he made a huge mistake. Nobody can tell he wasn't responsible for considering that goal. But I also think that he was making very good season debut. I mean, when we see him with the ball at his feet, he's being comfortable. He's been impressing me since the start of the season. So I'm not fearing he would do bad in the rest of the season. I think he will be um, a great goalkeeper. It's just a mistake, you know. Every every good goalkeeper makes mistakes, and we don't have to blame him for every mistakes he makes. I think that he has a um, fragile mentality, so I think that if everybody starts to blame him, it would affect him, and he would start playing a little bit bad or just be less impressive. So um, I think it's just a mistake and he will go on playing well like he did for the um, start of the season. The ball was hit well and it's always tricky when it bounces right in front of the keeper, but it's certainly a save you would expect him to make. He had a clear view of the shot and 
it was taken from pretty far out, 25, 30 meters out. So he had plenty of time to react. You don't have to be a goalkeeping expert to know that he should have put his body behind the ball instead of trying to make the save with his hands. Luca Marchegiani was a pundit on uh, Sky Sport, and he basically confirmed that as well. He said, Meret is the most technical goalkeeper in Italy, but this was a technical error. He said, Meret probably didn't expect the trajectory of the ball but he didn't set himself up well. He should have protected himself with his body instead of relying on his hands. That said, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think because of all the attention that was on Medet in the summer, everyone's kind of been waiting for him to make that kind of mistake to almost prove that, you know, they were right about Medet. Yeah, exactly. Um, but as Spalletti said in his post-match conference, you know, Medet's been fantastic for, over two months, he said, of, of very intense matches. He's made a lot of really important interventions during that time. So we can't jump all over him when he makes one mistake. And to your point, we know that he's mentally fragile and we don't want to blow this out of proportion and then let it actually affect him. I think it's important that we won this match. I think it might have affected him even more had we dropped points. But because we got the three points, hopefully everyone can just move on and then, you know, you mentioned the Mirakmani earlier, even though this was an error from Meret, it is worth noting that we've now conceded two goals in each of the two matches where Rachmani didn't play. Pal, that's just about all we have time for today, but any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I think that Zielinski should have got um, a goal or an assist today. Um, yesterday, sorry. And um, I'm also wondering if Oliveira should also be a starter in uh, the Serie A matches, because we know that Spalletti tend to make him play in the big Champions League matches. I think that he made a, a good game. He showed a lot of impact. And Mario Rui wasn't playing so good yesterday, so... I'm wondering if Spalletti should give uh, his trust to Oliveira also in Serie A matches, even though Mario Rui played very well since the start of the season. But I really like Oliveira, so maybe he should play a little bit more. Yeah, and I think we might see him slowly get more and more time. We've already kind of seen that. I think because we had the luxury of having a starting quality left back to start this season. There was no need to rush Oliveira into the squad. They gave him plenty of time to learn the system, get integrated. And now we're seeing him start matches in the Champions League. We're seeing him come off the bench to replace Mario Rui. And then I think Spalletti's going to use, you know, match them up based on the opponent. Like Oliveira is, he's bigger. So he's probably better at defending crosses. He's a bit more attack-minded. He likes to to drive forward and join the attack, very much like Di Lorenzo does on the other side. I've compared him to Teo Hernandez at Milan, where he likes to get forward and he likes to run towards the middle of the park, whereas Mario Rui tends to drift out wide and play in the cross. I think they both have positive qualities. And, and just like with the strikers, there's enough matches to come and enough minutes to go around that we should be able to play both of them and keep them both relatively happy. And then we'll just see who plays in sort of the bigger matches. Hopefully we can make a somewhat deep run into the Champions League. And, you know, these are good problems for us to have. And it goes back to that discussion about the depth of the squad. Okay, so that is where we'll leave it. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for welcoming me on the podcast. It was my pleasure. 
So you can find Paul on Twitter at Paulinho underscore 22. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fisket D5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Forza Napoli Pod. I will be back in a few days to review our latest Primavera and Femenile matches. And I'm hoping to have a guest later in the week to preview the match against Roma. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.